Good morning. Why don't we open with a word of prayer and transition out of that song, because that is a big amen for me. So, Heavenly Father, we call upon you now as we turn into your word and seek to hear from it that you might refine us. And Father, we echo the, the saying of that song that, that ultimately the deepest desire of our heart is that you would be glorified in our midst, that your love, your goodness, your justice, your beauty would be something that we behold more clearly, and Father, that it shapes our lives. And even as we look at a more practical teaching on boundaries, Father, let us not lose sight of the good news that your Son was sent to pay the price for our sin, and Father, that we are reconciled to you through that, and we recognize that is the source of all our hope and all our righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as those who are tracking with us week by week would know, uh, Brent has begun a series on First Peter, and uh, the book of First Peter was written to encourage Christians to boldly live out their faith despite the hostile circumstances that they faced. And, and this is something that's a challenge to us today in a world that's often unfriendly to our faith, uh, that we are not called to duck and, and uh, cover, but actually to be bold in sharing out our faith. And, uh, and so we've begun that journey, and uh, alongside that, um, we've been interspersing it with some practical teachings on different aspects of what it means to bear witness then as we go and do that boldly. And so I've argued in past sermons that it involves uh, promoting the gospel uh, by neighboring, uh, building good na- relationships with our neighbors, as well as praying for them and serving them with the gifts that we've been given. And it also involves proclaiming the gospel and sharing our testimony, as well as sharing the gospel and, and, and evangelizing and answering the tough questions that come our way. And last week, uh, we looked at the story of the Good Samaritan. And we were looking at this topic of neighboring a little bit more closely. And we considered the fact that he made himself a good neighbor by being interruptible, by caring more about human needs than making a convert, by refusing to think in us-versus-them terms, and by having compassion. But we closed off the sermon with the recognition that he did something else that was significant and we need to learn from, and that is that he recognized his limits and he set a boundary around the way that he would care for his neighbor. And this is something that we're going to talk about in more depth today. Now, this topic of boundaries is a bit of a passion of mine, and if you're in a young adults group or some of the camp ministries or things like that, you will have heard me speak on this before, so I apologize to all those who have heard little talks on this before. Uh, And much of the content of this sermon stems from a book written by Cloud and Townsend called, appropriately enough, Boundaries. Uh, And as with last week, this is more of a practical teaching than a strictly expository sermon, but I do believe that the topic of boundaries is a deeply biblical one, and one that's very central to how we live out our faith. It's something that really uh, underpins a lot of the ways that we need to serve. Um, And the book, Boundaries, goes into great detail on how it is that this theme is developed biblically and how we should live it out. Um, uh, I I don't have the time to go into it in full detail today, but what we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at a story in Exodus 18 that I think illustrates the principle of boundaries very well. Uh, And it dovetails nicely with the the scripture reading we had this morning from John 17, which talks about this idea that we are called to be apart from the world, but then to go into the world. And I I think really, if we're going to talk about this idea of boundaries, we need to recognize there's no way that we can remain apart and distinct. There's no way that we can remain holy and righteous unless we have some capacity to recognize our limits and to set boundaries. And so that's, that's part of the reason why we, we think about it in this way. But let's look at Exodus 18 together and the story of Moses and Jethro, um, which you may have encountered before. So Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt 
Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now Jethro, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his law. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate abroad, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all time. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves." So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard cases they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually find it pretty striking how Jethro responds to Moses in this story. We see it start out simply enough with a celebration of the deliverance that God has brought and the recognition that he is good and has provided for them, and that Moses is serving out of that and trying to now continue what God has begun in bringing his people into his presence and helping them understand how he wants them to live their lives. And, and here he is, meeting with people, judging their cases, uh, living as the leader of the, the people, and it, it sounds like it's pretty important work that Moses is doing. 
And so I think it's striking when Jethro hears what it is that Moses is doing, he asks for a deeper explanation, and upon hearing it, his first response is, what you are doing is not good. You know, I think the reason why it's striking is because it actually looks a lot like what we often call Christian service. Moses is embracing his responsibility to the community. Moses is using the gifts and the leadership skills that he's been given. Moses is demonstrating sacrificial love by serving even when it hurts. And yet, Jethro rebukes him because he will wear himself out by carrying too heavy a burden. Now, what's going on in this story is quite simple. Jethro is teaching Moses how to acknowledge his limits and to set boundaries. This demonstrates if we're really going to be effective at serving people, if we really want them to flourish, then we need to learn how to set our limits, how to say, this is too much for me, and I need to recognize that. And so I think it illustrates really well what it is that we need to keep in mind as we go out into the world and we serve others. Because there will be points when we are asked to do things that we simply do not have the capacity to do. And there will be points when we have to choose between what our top priorities are so that we're able to make sure we're serving the most effective possible. The reality is none of us is limitless. Even Moses, this great man who was anointed by God, chosen by him to lead his people, had, had been part of some amazing works that God had done in bringing about freedom for Israel from the land of Egypt, even he had limits. And in fact, when you look at a man who came along a few thousand years later, named Jesus, he too actually lived out his life in a boundaried way. That he, in bringing about the next deliverance, the greater deliverance of freeing us from sin, was still the kind of man who would say, I'm going to withdraw for a little while. I'm not going to put up with this type of person who just keeps on nagging at me. I'm going to confront things that are not healthy in the people around me. And this is what it looks like to have boundaries. Now, I think when we look at this story of Moses and Jethro, there are four principles that really underpin Jethro's instructions to Moses, okay? They're not things that are explicit in the story, but I think that they're there in what he is encouraging Moses to do. The four principles are, first of all, there's a difference between knapsacks and boulders, and I'll explain that in a second. It's an analogy. There's also a difference between being responsible for people and being responsible to them. There's also a difference between hurting people and harming them. And there's a difference between being unable to say no and free sacrificial love. Okay, so we're going to dig into each of those in turn here. First of all, there's a difference between knapsacks and boulders. Now, what do I mean by that? This is an analogy that they use in this boundaries book to try and explain what it is that boundaries really are and how they function. Okay? Imagine that every one of us in this room has a knapsack. And in that knapsack are all of the basic responsibilities that each and every one of us has to carry with us. This is a responsibility to look after our health and hygiene. This is a responsibility to treat other people with respect. This is a responsibility to generally try and control how we respond to emotions and things and circumstances that come our way. This is, this is a responsibility to live up to the commitments that we've made and to actually manage our time and resources well, right? These are all things that each of us individually has to carry with us. These are the basic responsibilities of life that none of us can dodge. On the other hand, sometimes there are things that come our way that might be compared to boulders. That is, things that are abnormally heavy, for individuals to bear, right? That, that sometimes we have a loved one pass away 
and there's tremendous grief. Or sometimes we lose a job and financially we're not able to make ends meet. Or sometimes we go through a stage where we're sick, either mentally or physically. And, and, and so suddenly regular responsibilities become much more heavy for us to bear, right? And in these cases, it is appropriate and good for us to reach out and ask for help from the people around us. Now, healthy individuals and healthy communities rely on being able to identify what is a person's knapsack in any given circumstance, and where are the boulders in life that we need to be able to ask for help? Do you follow me? That, that it's really important for us to be able to say, when, when somebody is coming to us asking for money all the time, are they just neglecting their basic responsibilities, or is there actually something here that I need to help them carry? And in the case of Moses, I think what's happened is he's actually trying to carry a boulder all by himself. And that is not healthy for him or for the community. And this is what Jethro says to him. This is too heavy a burden for you to bear. How is it that you're taking upon yourself the responsibility for the entire nation? This is ridiculous. Right? And he says, okay, now it's time for you to recognize the boulder that you're carrying, and you're going to start asking some other people to come in alongside you and carry it with you. Right? And this, this is a setting of boundary to say, okay, this is too much for me alone. I now need to delegate. I need to ask others to come in and help. Conversely, Moses might have been shirking off his responsibilities. He could have been saying, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to hear any of those cases, whatever. I'm just going to go over here and enjoy the benefits of being the king around here. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to eat some good food, and I'm going, to, I'm going to marry a couple women, and just enjoy myself, right? And Jethro might have come in in a very different way and said, hey, smarten up, right? You're the leader of these people. God has called you to something. Now start picking up your knapsack and carry that. So we can see it swinging either way, but the key is to be able to recognize what are my responsibilities, Uh, am I carrying them effectively, and what are my boulders that I need to share with others, and and then to look around at other people and say the same thing. Am I carrying somebody else's knapsack? Am I taking responsibility for something that's not really mine, or am I helping somebody with a boulder? And this leads very naturally into the second distinction, which is the distinction of responsibility two versus responsibility four. Okay, I think a lot of the time, we think that we are responsible for other people. And actually, that is just categorically untrue. When it comes to the responsibility for one's well-being, the only person who is responsible for that, ultimately, is you. Right? And, and, and do not ever let tell somebody else tell you, well, you're the one who made me think that way or act that way or, 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 or be that way. Right? Because ultimately, every one of us has a choice of how we handle the different circumstances that we face. Now, now we need to own our part in any situation. We need to acknowledge if we've done something that's hurtful to another person, well, I did choose to do that. Or conversely, if I haven't lived up to my responsibility to love another person or to respect them or to to treat them with my gifts the way that God intended, right? Then, then there is a failure there on my part. But the question is, am I doing with my life what I should, not am I responsible for the other person's life? Right? And so this is the distinction that they draw in the Boundaries book, is that I am never responsible for another person. And I might add a little asterisk to that. Maybe, you know, my six-year-old daughter, yeah, I'm responsible for her. Right? But, but basing it on the idea that I have a mutual relationship with another adult, I'm not ever responsible for them. Instead, I'm responsible to them, to be their friend, to be their mentor, to be somebody who treats them with love and respect. But it's all about how I am responsible for what I do in their life, not ultimately, what their life looks like. Do you follow me? And and so this is very important for us to be able to distinguish between in the way we think about our responsibilities in in other people's lives. This is important partly because of the fact that when it comes to our own actions, we need to be able to discern, am I hurting 
somebody or am I harming them? And the analogy that they use in the Boundaries book is a trip to the dentist. A trip to the dentist is not something that any of us like, especially if there's some sort of emergency surgery required. We know that there's a great deal of discomfort and pain that comes along with that. And yet, in doing that, is the dentist harming me? No, of course not. The dentist is actually doing me a great deal of good in hurting me in that situation. They're ensuring that I'm able to live much more healthily moving from that point onwards. And there are going to be times in life when we have found ourselves constantly trying to avoid hurting somebody else to their detriment. And the call at that point in time is to reverse that. To say, if I need to speak a hard truth into somebody's life, or if I need to say no to somebody who's taking advantage of me, or if I need to begin interacting more fairly and honestly with a person, that, that in any of these situations, it may hurt the person. It may really. It, it may make them feel uncomfortable or sad or angry at me. It, it may not be a pleasant experience for them. And yet I know by continuing to not assert that boundary, I'm actually harming them. Whereas I help them when I assert the boundary and restore what is a sustainable, good relationship. There's a book called Helping Without Hurting that I think is actually a really helpful book. Now, they, they flip the language. They use hurting in, in terms of what I would say is harming, okay? Um, but they talk about different levels of help that you can offer to somebody. They talk about this idea of emergency relief, that sometimes when somebody is asking you for help, they, they really are just in a desperate strait and need an immediate so- solution to that problem, right? Uh, and, and so to be able to step in and say, okay, I'm going to help you with that immediate situation is good. But sometimes the problem is not that there's an immediate emergency, The problem is that there's an ongoing situation that is causing problems for that person. And to just keep on offering emergency relief in that will not help them. It actually will harm them long term, right? It keeps them dependent on something that's not actually going to fix their situation. And so what you need to work with them on is let's actually change your situation. Let's try and fix what it is that's underlying this continuing problem that you have. And last but not least, sometimes it's that there's something actually lacking in the other person that they don't have the capacities they need to to thrive. And so what needs to happen in that case is actually skills development. This is not just an opportunity to change the circumstance. It's certainly not an opportunity just to keep on doing emergency patch jobs. It's an opportunity to actually develop the other person and help them grow. And in all of our relationships, big and small, you will find situations like this. Sometimes people will be coming to you looking for you to act with them in a way that is an emergency. Oh, just do what I ask you to do right now. All I need is for you to do that. And you might have to step back and say, wait a minute. To do that, I'm actually going to harm you. What I really need to do is set a boundary and then help you in a way that's really helpful, that's going to grow you, that's going to help you, that's not going to leave you in the same situation that you're in currently. And that might hurt. Sometimes those conversations are hard, but they're not going to harm the other person, and we need to keep that distinction in mind. And last but not least, and this is maybe the most important on a Christian level, is that we really need to recognize there is a difference between an inability to say no and free, sacrificial love. I think in the church, this is probably the thing that creates the most pressure to avoid setting boundaries. For those of us who have been in Moses-like situations, where we find ourselves just burning out because of all the responsibilities we've taken on, a lot of the time there's this inner voice that says, well, Jesus loved people sacrificially. Why don't you just love beyond your limits too? Because that's what sacrificial love looks like. But the reality is, unless you are able to actually say no, you cannot choose to love anybody. You're not not doing anything intentional. You're just accepting whatever comes your way. And that really is not love, and it's not really sacrifice. 
All it is is a hamster running on a spinning wheel. You're just taking life as it comes at you and just burning yourself out. When you look at Jesus' life, this is not how he lived. He seemed very intentional about the way that he paced his life. He seemed to choose where he was going to serve and where he was not. He seemed to pick the people that he was going to invest in the most heavily. Did Jesus love sacrificially? Absolutely. He, he loved sacrificially in a way that none of us will ever be able to in paying the price for sins. Right? But he chose that. And Jesus is very clear about the fact, no man takes my life except that I choose it. That's one of the things that he, he actually issues very strongly, is that it is entirely his choice to go to the cross and pay that price. And that's a great mystery and something that should cause us to worship him much more deeply. But it should also be a challenge for us, that if we see ourselves loving people, and I put scare quotes around that, right? Loving people, and all it really looks like is I can never say no to anything, then we're probably not really loving them to the best of our ability. We're not choosing free sacrificial love. We're just, we're just doing, right? And so, and so we need to keep this distinction in mind in our relationships with others so that we can serve them properly and effectively. So, so, so the recap is that there's a difference between knapsacks and boulders, our everyday responsibilities and the bigger things that we need to ask help and help others with. There's also a difference between being responsible for people and being responsible to them. And there's a difference between hurting people and harming them. And there's a difference between being unable to say no and free sacrificial love. And as we keep those principles in mind, I think then we get to the point where we realize, oh, wait a minute, I have not acknowledged my limits. I have not set a boundary. I have ended up in a situation like Moses where I'm taking on more than I'm actually able to carry. And at that point in time, the question then becomes, okay, how do I restore normalcy? How do I actually set a boundary? And I have a five-step process to that. The first step is to voice your commitment to the other person. And this goes back to that idea of hurting versus harming, right? This comes back to this idea of choosing love. When it comes to setting a boundary with somebody, we need to be careful to distinguish. I love you. I care about you. Nothing is changing in my commitment to this relationship. In fact... Boundaries are loving because they help restore health in the relationship. And so to be able to say to the other person, I care for you, I love you, is very important that it's not coming across as us saying, I want nothing to do with you. Then alongside that, we need to say, here's what the problematic behavior is and explain why it's a problem. This is important. You want to try and do your best to help somebody understand. It doesn't mean they will understand. Ultimately, that's on their head. Right? But a, an honest boundary is something that is communicated as clearly as we are able to. We need to give the other person a chance to understand why it is that we're doing what we're doing. Then we can say, here's what I would like to see happening instead of what's currently happening. You're giving some sort of a vision for a different kind of relationship, something be that's better than what is currently happening. But then you have to also add, here's how I'm going to act in the meantime. And this is really the clincher, is that you need to be able to say, here's what I will or won't do until something has changed in our relationship. And this is where the rubber hits the road. This is the thing that's going to actually determine whether or not health is restored in the relationship. And then the last thing is what we actually have to stick to that boundary that we've set. And this is sometimes the hardest part, is we can talk all big and say, oh, I'm not going to do what you've told me to do. But then the next time they ask, we turn and do it anyways because we feel so guilty. And that ends up just undermining our credibility. Right? This goes back to this idea of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Right? When, we, when we said, I need to change this, we need to actually stick to it. When we do this, when we follow this process, 
It allows us to stop focusing on changing the other person and focus on something we do have control over, which is our own response to the other person. And this is really important. We never can change another person. We just can't. But we can always determine how we respond to another person. And, and, and this process acknowledges that and builds on it. Alongside that, this process has to be kept in mind that the, the goal, ultimately, is to change the problematic interaction, the problematic behavior that's taking place. It doesn't necessarily lead to change in how the other person feels about you. In fact, they may feel very negatively about you for a long time if you do this. And this is really important. We need to recognize, ultimately, how somebody feels about us does not matter one bit. Unless they're acting out of that. And this is hard. I think we spend a lot of time trying to think of how does this person perceive me and how can I change that. Ultimately, it makes not one bit of difference in your life if somebody likes you or dislikes you. What matters is how they treat you based on that. And so the goal of boundaries is to say, I'm going to focus on behavior here. I'm actually going to change what's happening between us on a behavioral level and let God handle the person's internal life. And it's also important to keep in mind, boundaries can be negotiated and changed. But it shouldn't happen very often, and when it does happen, it should be clearly communicated so the person knows that you're actually serious about sticking to boundaries. If you're always just giving and taking and, and changing your boundaries underneath the surface and the other person has no idea what you're doing, they're just going to assume, hey, I can keep on doing what I want. <laughs> right? Whereas when you're really clear, hey, you know, you've started changing and so I'm going to change where our boundary is, that's okay, but it should be communicated clearly. Now, now let's take this down to a practical level. How does this five-step process actually work? And I have a silly example that I like to use as an illustration of this. Uh, imagine that you have a really good friend from another culture, and in that culture, spitting on each other is a way of saying hello. <laughs> okay? So every, every time you see this person, the first thing they do is put a big goober right on your cheek. <laughs> okay? And now this, for you, is an uncomfortable experience. <laughs> this is not how we do it in our culture, right? And so, and so to follow this process, you would start by saying, hey, I love you, I value you, <laughs> right? You're, you're a friend, and I want to keep on cultivating this friendship, right? Um, and then to clarify, right, but I really don't appreciate it when you spit on my cheek, <laughs> right? It makes me feel really gross, and it's just not something I can, I can stand every time that I see you. <laughs> Right? And so then the next thing that we do is to say, you know, I'd really love it if instead of spitting on me, maybe you could give me a little kiss on the cheek when we see each other or something like that that's a little less gross. <laughs> right? Um, and in the meantime, whenever I see you, I'm just going to have to stand 10 feet away. <laughs> right? I'm going I'm to say hi. I'll be really animated about, hey, buddy, I'm glad to see you. How are you doing? But I'm going to keep my distance. <laughs> Because you're not able to spit on me if I'm a, a, a 10 steps away from you, right? Uh, and so now what this, this does is it gives the other person a choice. Okay, do I stop spitting on him? Or do I now have to expect that he'll always keep his distance from me, right? And it's framed the relationship in very clear terms. And the key is, next time you see him, you need to step 10 feet away and say, Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> you ready to stop spitting on me yet? <laughs> And if he says, yeah, 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 okay, I get it. Okay, now we can, now we can negotiate that boundary, <laughs> right? So, so you see, this is a silly illustration, but I think it illustrates well how the, how the process works. Other situations where you might find this happening. Maybe you discover that a good friend has shared confidential details about your life with somebody else. This is a real situation. Gossip happens, right? And in that case, the conversation might go something like, hey, 
I, I, I love you, I value our friendship. Um, uh, you know, you, you are somebody that I, I appreciate being able to share confidential things with, but I found out the other day you shared with other people something that I shared with you in confidence, and that really hurts. And it makes me feel like if I share other deep secrets with you, I'm not going to be able to trust that they're going to stay put. So in the meantime, I'm, I'm just not going to share anything with you unless you decide to start keeping things in confidence, right? And, and so then the other person can either come back and say, you're right, I'm sorry, right? I, I need to change that, maybe help me work on that. Or the other person says, oh, I don't see what the big deal is, why are you getting all worked up anyways? Okay, we're going to maintain this boundary until I'm ready to see some change, Right? Another situation might be you have a university-aged child. They're off away at university. You're providing a certain amount of funds for them to be able to live out their university years, and they keep on partying away the money. Right? It's not a terribly uncommon scenario. Right? In, in that situation, you can choose whether you let them reap the consequences of that. All right, maybe you're going to have to deal with less food. <laughs> maybe you're going to have to deal with you know, not being able to pay for tuition next semester, and you have to start working and raise some money to try and get back in it, right? Or you can perpetuate unhealth by just saying, I'm going to keep on dumping money at this situation, right? So when you realize, no, ultimately, my child's an adult. They have to take responsibility for their finances. They have to, they have to suffer the consequences of their choices. Then at that point in time, again, you can voice your commitment. I love you. You're my, my, you're my son. You're my daughter. I'm, I'm never going to stop caring about you and loving you. But I'm going to have to do something for your own good. I'm not going to cover your bills when you keep on partying them all the way. Right? If you choose to stop this cycle and get back on track, then I will help you get back on your feet and resume this commitment. But until I see that happening, then I'm sorry. I just, I'm not going to help you out with your situation. You're going to have to deal with it. Right? And that's hard. <laughs> and when they come to you saying, hey, I, I don't even have enough money to eat food, that's going to be a really tough one to say sorry. <laughs> right? But until that sorry happens, there's not going to be any change. Maybe you say, hey, let me take you down to the food bank. I'll help you learn how to do that instead. Right? Uh, another situation. Maybe, maybe your mother keeps on phoning you and venting about your father. Okay? Again, I've, I've seen this scenario play out a lot of different times. Right? In fact, I've lived out my situation like this. This is, this is one that's actually based on a personal example. Because for a long time... This was, this was not my mother, it was actually my father, and not ranting about my mother, but actually ranting about my siblings, <laughs> right? That he would regularly phone, or often it was via email, he would send a message and say, hey, Ben, your brother or your sister has done this or hasn't done this, I don't like it, I need you to convince them to get on my side, <laughs> right? And I would stop, and I would look at the email, and I'd realize, wait a minute, what he's asking is completely unreasonable, <laughs> And so normally I would say, hey, Dad, I think you're being completely unreasonable. And that didn't respond in change on his part, surprise, surprise. Normally it responded in a long argument that went on for days at a time. And uh, in my first year of marriage, my wife would dread these moments because for days I'd be distracted, just waiting for that next email to come in so I could continue convincing him that he was wrong. Right? And it didn't work. Ultimately, I needed to recognize it's not my responsibility to convince my dad that he's wrong. I think there is something good about voicing my opinion, but to get sucked into a perpetual cycle of debate about these situations just wasn't healthy for me or for him. It wasn't alleviating the situation whatsoever, right? And so I had to learn to write an email back saying, Dad, here's what I think you're missing, and that's all I'm going to say. 
You can email me back. I will read your emails, but I will not respond to your emails. I love you, Dad. I want to see your relationship with my siblings flourishing, but I'm just not willing to keep on getting sucked into these debates. Right? And that was hard. <laughs> and sticking to it the first few times, I felt like a jerk, and he made me sound like a jerk. Right? He would respond back by saying, Ben, you're just being terrible. You need to help fix this situation. How can you abandon me to this? Right? And ultimately, when I kept on sticking to it, suddenly those emails changed. He realized it wasn't worth the fight because he's putting a lot of emotional energy into trying to convince me to move on something I'm not going to move on. Right? And, so, and so that actually started improving my relationship with my dad. And we have a much better relationship today than we did, partly because of the fact that I stopped getting sucked into all of these debates. Partly because my siblings grew up and he doesn't have as much to do with them too. So that helps. Right? So, so, so these, are, these are a couple illustrations. And you can see how they play out in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your relationship with friends and family. And the, key, the key is to be able to step by step to say, hey, I love you, but there's a problem in our relationship. I'd like to see it changed, but here's how I'm going to act until it does and to stick to that. And if you're able to do that, you will find that you are then much more able to choose freely when you overlook your well-being and love somebody beyond what they would expect. And in those moments, there's a real witnessing opportunity. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the wisdom that your word contains and for the challenge of loving people the way that your son and your chosen leaders have done through history. And Father, I pray that we would be able to discern through your Holy Spirit working in our lives, where those moments are that we need to set a boundary and where those moments are where we need to say, I'm just going to sacrifice here. And Father, that we would be able to freely choose to love other people the way that your son does, not because we can't say no, but because we are the kind of people who know who we are and we're able to stand on our values strongly and then choose how to respond to them. In Jesus' name, amen.